The King is Dead. James Dines, master newsletter writer. The great of the greats of the speculators. You have to look wrong to be right. One of my favorite sayings by the great James Dines. 1931 to 2022. And we have a Legacy.com obituary. I think it's a little too long to read, but I'm going to read just a paragraph here. And it says here, James Dines, the original gold bug, passed away peacefully at his home in California on the 12th of April, 2022. Editor, financial analyst, author, and precious metals mining industry expert, Mr. Dines was known for his willingness and courage to contradict the prevailing conventional sentiment of the financial community in formulating his predictions and forecasts almost always to the benefit of subscribers to his premier publication, The Dines Letter, TDL. Continuously published since its start on Wall Street in 1960, TDL is the longest surviving newsletter of its kind. So you can read the whole thing on Legacy.com. I'll read the last paragraph too, because it's actually pretty funny. Services will be held at Cypress Lawn Funeral Home, Tiffany Chapel on Tuesday, April 26, 2022, at noon. In lieu of sending flowers, the family requests that you get yourself properly dressed, grab some excellent reading material, take yourself to lunch, and order a nice glass of wine. And you have to wonder, I I guess that's probably what James Dines would do. Get yourself properly dressed, grab some excellent reading material, take yourself to lunch, and order a nice glass of wine. So there you have it. I mean, the reason I speak these words into your ears today was by that fateful day when I decided to subscribe to the Dines Letter, trying to get rich quick, and it actually worked out not bad temporarily. I was in the rare earths. Of course, it's easier to buy than to sell. But nevertheless, I actually did quite well in that. I never got rich, but I I was the richest I'd ever been. Let's put it that way. So that was, And then the following years were very difficult in the mind. In the mining sector. So, and you know, like the great thing when someone reaches their potential, like James Dines, it's hard to be too sad at a life, a long life of someone reaching their potential and really just entertaining the hell out of everybody. So, and you know, a great speaker, a great writer, a great communicator. And uh, he was just really one of the most exciting people in the whole newsletter business. I'd say, like, there's no, there's nothing like an interview with James Dines when you that pops up on your feed back in the day. I mean, he rarely gave interviews. So the last interview I heard was about a year and a half ago, which is what got me to buy crypto, kind of before it went crazy. Maybe that's two years ago. I think it was August 2020. Yeah, it was August 2020. And it was like literally weeks, two, three weeks later, Bitcoin started to make its historic run from $10,000 and on and on it went. So... Yeah, he still had it. There he was, probably 89 years old. So pretty amazing. So he definitely stayed young in spirit. So our condolences to the Dines family. And so coming up this show, we're going to do an Alcoa conference call. I thought that might be a really interesting way to take the temperature of what's going on out there. And sure enough, it was interesting. Like uh, The stock price dropped pretty precipitously, even though... They did quite well financially, and so there's a lot of speculation that came out afterwards. I mean, one of the main reasons was energy. 
when you listen to the conference call, which was super interesting, right? Because you buy these stocks thinking, oh, aluminum's going to the moon, and then all of a sudden their energy costs are going to the moon as well. So that is kind of, you know, something you have to keep in mind. And it's just one more argument to buying the actual metal over the stocks. And both have their place, their time and their place, and again, not financial advice. Um, but it was interesting. I mean, Bloomberg came out with an article and they said they the shares dropped. Uh, and this was actually super interesting, was the reaction, because nobody really knew why. But classic financial media, they want to attribute some reason to it. It could have just been the markets falling. You know, like the, it's been pretty volatile out there the last few days, particularly last Friday. And so the Bloomberg headline is, Alcoa sinks as aluminum shipments fall in sign of waning demand. And this is where, like, our little mining sector becomes a proxy for macro. Shares fall most in eight months amid demand destruction worries. Company still sees aluminum demand growing 2% in 2022. So that's the Bloomberg take. Then if we go to the Motley Fool, and it's interesting why Alcoa stock is crashing today. So this is the next day. The aluminum producer earned record profit in its first quarter, but many believe the best might be over. Maybe, and they're saying the market expected Alcoa to report even higher revenue given the recent surge in aluminum prices in the wake of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But then they say, scrolling down a bit, they also had a strike in Spain. They made an agreement with workers who went on strike after the company started weighing options to sell or close the facility in Spain in the wake of exorbitant energy prices that made it unprofitable. Now, this was another interesting thing I learned in our little aluminum episode here which is that it takes an enormous amount of energy to make aluminum. I was listening to that in The World for Sale by Javier Bloss, who is an opinion writer for Bloomberg. Excellent book. And sure enough, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to do an episode on aluminum, often ignored here. And let's see what's going on. And sure enough, the next chapter in the book was aluminum yesterday. So that was super interesting. And uh, yeah, the history of aluminum is quite fascinating. And and first of all, just before we get into a tiny bit of the history, if you've ever wondered, is it aluminum or aluminium, at least according to Wikipedia, which is not necessarily a great source, especially if you ask a scientist friend, but nevertheless, they say American English and Canadian English use aluminum, whereas the rest of the English-speaking world outside of North America says aluminium. And that definitely rings true because I grew up with aluminum. Aluminium is a lot kind of harder to pronounce generally. You get better at it over time. So in terms of the history, it was only discovered in 1825 by Danish physicist Hans Christian Ørsted. And this is Wikipedia here, so take it for what it's worth. The first industrial production of aluminum was initiated by French chemist Henri Etienne St. Clair de Ville in 1856. Aluminum became much more available to the public with the Hall-Heroux process developed independently by French engineer Paul Heroux and American engineer Charles Martin Hall in 1886. And the mass production of aluminum led to its extensive use in industry and everyday life. And finally, in World Wars I and II, aluminum was a crucial strategic resource for aviation. And this is super interesting, right? And it makes sense. It's a really strong metal, but it's super light, as anybody that's drank a can of Coca-Cola knows. Those things, it almost weighs nothing. So it's kind of a magical metal and used a lot in transportation and, of course, very useful for war. Now, 
there is a history too. It goes all the way back. The word alum goes all the way back to Herodotus, interestingly, which is the first written record of alum. And another interesting aspect of aluminum is there's bauxite and then there's alumina. And from what I understand, bauxite is the earth that holds the alum. And from bauxite, you get alumina, and that's a whitish powder, as far as I understand. You can, I don't know if I'd say distill it to, but reduce it to. And then from alumina, you can create aluminum. So a key part of our modern world. So, and another final thing, so we're back to this energy issue. So in the world for sale, they said that traders sometimes called it yeah, that traders sometimes called it congealed electricity because it takes so much power, referring to aluminum. It takes that much power to make it. Another interesting fact, so Alcoa, I believe, was the first aluminum company. One of those guys that we were talking about earlier helped start Alcoa, and they had such a stranglehold on the industry that a court forced Alcoa to dispense of its international subsidiaries from itself. So Alcoa split off, and that's when Alcan, the Canadian aluminum producer and smelter, was created in 1951. Now that got sold in 2007 to Rio Tinto, and now it's like, you know, a major part of their aluminum portfolio. And of course, that's why Saguenay, Quebec, their smelter, I wonder, like, it probably is using the hydroelectric power that Quebec produces. I I don't know that, but I suspect. And back to that energy usage stuff. So anyway, so we're going to go into Alcoa's conference call. And again, as always, it's all very interesting in how it just says, it really is a window onto what's going on, say, with energy and Russia, major topics of discussion in the narrative and, you know, and even these strategic metals Remember that railway story that also hurt Alcoa this quarter, uh, the rail strike in, I think, BC? So very, very topical. So lots to get to here. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And with that... Let's turn to the news. And turning to the website, Shelby Yee and Alex Dorsch named Young Mining Professionals of the Year. So big congrats again to Shelby Yee and Alex Dorsch. This is by Carl A. Williams, and he writes, The winners of this year's Young Mining Professionals YMP Awards are Shelby Yee of privately held Rock Mass Technologies, and Alex Dorsch of Chalice Mining. The YMP Awards, presented in association with the Northern Miner, recognize two mining professionals under 40 who have demonstrated exceptional leadership skills and innovative thinking and provided value to their companies and shareholders. The awards are named after two iconic entrepreneurs in the mining industry, Ira Thomas and the late Peter Monk. And Shelby Yee, of course, won the 2022 Ira Thomas Award and Alex Dorsch, the Peter Monk Award. This year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, the awards ceremony has been moved to Sunday, June 12th, and will be an outdoor event at Chump Restaurant in downtown Toronto. Since last year's awards were presented online, the organizers invited Maggie Lehman and Matthew Fenton, that year's winners. 
And finally, the sponsor of this year's event are Barrick Gold, KPMG, Kessel's Brock and Blackwell, and the Northern Miner. So congratulations to both Shelby and Alex. A wonderful award, and I'm sure that'll be a great night. Vital Metals blazes path to commercial production with Canada's first rare earth mine. I remember James Dines recommending Avalon Rare Earth Metals back in the day. It did okay. I think it went up to nine bucks from a buck fifty. It was one, you know, I probably got in at three or something. Yeah, that was a good one. Okay, so this is by Blair McBride, a new name here. And it says it's a year of many firsts for Australia's Vital Metals and its rare earth elements operation in the Northwest Territories. So Australia's Vital Metals is the current owner. It used to be Avalon. And continuing on, following the establishment in 2021 of Nicolaco, Canada's first rare earths mine, Vital's Yellowknife-based subsidiary, Cheetah Resources, will this week ship its first load of mixed rare earth concentrate to a processing facility in Saskatchewan. Isn't this great? This is just music to my ears, like Canada getting it together. David Connolly, Cheetah's Vice President of Strategy and Corporate Affairs, said the 500-ton load will be shipped by road or rail from the southern port city of Hay River in Northwest Territories to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, my home turf. Quote, we are excited, he said. Strategically, it demonstrates that northern Canada is emerging as a cornerstone of the critical mineral supply chain for Canada and its allies. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, that's... War talk, hey? Canada and its allies. <laughs> Vital acquired the near-surface resources at Nicolaco from Avalon Advanced Materials in 2019. You got to wonder on the timing on that. Those guys held on for nine years. But who knows? Maybe it was already starting to pick up by the time they sold and got a good price for it. I don't know. Anyways, it's a nice long article. And it goes into the Saskatoon Rare Earth Processing Plant. So check that out. Northernminer.com. Great article there. Another article, as demand for critical minerals rise, Canada's North hopes to be a clean player. This is by Naimul Karim. This week, Canada's Minister of Transport, Omar Algebra, traveled nearly 5,000 kilometers from his base in Ontario to Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories, not to make a new announcement, but to promote elements of this year's federal budget tabled in early April that allocates a massive $3.8 billion to support the country's critical mineral sector. Standing in front of an air tindy plane at Deton Cho Logistics, Algebra said, quote, there's a reason why I came up here, end quote, and then talked about how the resources in the region are among the country's richest and the good work that the territories have done to, quote, understand, end quote, their natural resources and to find ways to extract them in a sustainable way. And scrolling down... While resources in the north may be prevalent, most mines and projects aren't connected to the grid and largely depend on diesel for power, which runs counter to the use of many critical minerals to decarbonize the economy. And we have a quote from Tom Huffer, executive director of the Northwest Territories and Nunavut Chamber of Mines, in an interview with the Northern Miner, quote, there's an irony in all this. Here we are trying to produce critical minerals and we are having to use fossil fuels. That's just not the best situation, and so we would like to see those mines supported with green power. Well, there is going to be a transition. Northern infrastructure deficit. You know, I don't know what's taking so long. Like, actually, I guess I do. Canada is an enormous country, but I don't know. I feel like this is a problem we've known about for decades, which is that the North doesn't have 
much infrastructure, but I just assume that they're, they are going to build, I guess we should just be relieved they're building it out here. And frankly, that it's being discussed. We have another quote from Huffer, quote, the two territories have the biggest infrastructure deficit. We don't have roads, ports, railway lines, but at the same time, because we're so big, we include a number of geological provinces, which means a lot of mineral potential. We are a bit up against the wall when it comes to power. And he also says, quote, our diamond mines can't bring in LNG on a seasonal ice road because then they need to pay too much money to keep the stuff refrigerated. So, you know, I just think like with all of the concerns about supply chains and everything, Canada's north is a no-brainer. And yes, it will be expensive. Yes, it is enormous. But I think we have to see that as a positive, not a negative. We are so lucky, Canada is so lucky, that it's too big. That it's too big. So uh, it's a wonderful problem to have. So let's get to it. The talk has begun. And look, they just put $3.8 billion. I guess this is huge. It's considered a lot of money. I don't know. In the era of money printers, it seems like a decent amount. I don't know why this hasn't been allocated the last 10 years. Lest I become political here. Speaking of politics, Mexico passes mining reform, nationalizing lithium. So there's a head turner by Cecilia Jamazmi. Let us look a little closer here. Mexico has officially nationalized its lithium industry after the Senate approved by 87 votes in favor, 20 against, and 16 abstentions, the mining reform proposed by President Andres Manuel López Obrador, which gives the state exclusive rights over the battery metal. The law, which came into force on Thursday, was approved in record time, only two days after it being introduced by López Obrador to Congress. The bill elevates lithium to the category of, quote, strategic mineral, end quote, declaring the exploration, exploitation, and use of lithium to be the exclusive right of the state. It also includes a clause allowing the state to take charge of other minerals declared strategic by Mexico. The executive now has 90 days to create a new decentralized body to deal with all lithium-related matters. And finally, since taking power in 2018, Lopez Obrador has fought to reverse resource reforms under previous governments, which opened up the oil and electricity sectors to private investment. He has pushed a resource exploitation model that gives priority to state-controlled companies. You know, jurisdiction, 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 like even previously once thought of as from the private sector as reliable countries like Mexico, Peru, and Chile, it's just getting more challenging for these guys. And who's going to take that risk anymore? Like, I think the premium on what's considered politically safe jurisdictions from things like nationalization one can only imagine the the premium goes up on places like Canada and the U.S. and maybe Europe. <laughs> uh, now, this is another interesting little wrinkle in this story. The president said his administration will review all lithium contracts, which casts a shadow of doubt over projects already being developed in the country, including the one held by Bacanora Lithium in the country's northwest. The company, owned by China's Genfang Lithium, owns the giant Sonora project, which is slated to produce 35,000 tons of the metal per year starting in 2023. The law would likely bring trade tensions with the country's northern neighbors, as it is said to violate the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, USMCA. Well, everybody's just breaking rules left and right now. It's kind of just a sign of the times, and it's not a good sign, is it? Continuing on, Chile Constitution drafters reject mining adverse proposal. 
Chile Constitution Drafters Reject Mining Adverse Proposal. This is also by Cecilia Jamasmi. And it says here, Chile's Constitutional Assembly has rejected a proposal from the Environmental Committee seeking to tighten up rules related to the protection of the country's natural resources, which would have hit the mining sector if they became law. Among the changes suggested, there is one granting nature the status of a legal subject with rights. This is like the reverse of, it's like calling a corporation an individual. Now they're calling nature an individual. That's kind of funny, isn't it? Among the changes suggested, there was one granting nature the status of a legal subject with rights. <laughs> Keeping environmental crimes free of any statutes of limitation and extend protections of water sources, glaciers, wetlands, and native forests. Well, you do have to laugh. I mean, if we're going to call a corporation an individual or, you know, or have the same rights as individuals. Why can't we do that with rivers or the with nature? I, I think it's kind of funny. I mean, the articles had already been toned down amid criticism from miners and analysts concerned about radical proposals such as nationalizing key assets. Constituents rejected the 52 articles presented by five votes preventing voting on individual items and return the entire proposal to the Environmental Committee for further revision. To make it into the new constitution, each article needs to receive at least 103 out of 154 possible votes. Wow. So, you can read the whole thing on northernminer.com. And finally, just a couple of headlines here. Cadelco to create mining carbon footprint calculator. That's by Cecilia Jamasmi as well. Chile's Cadelco, the world's largest copper producer, is developing a free-to-use platform for suppliers to calculate their greenhouse gas emissions, GHG, a service the company said it is not currently available in the mining industry. Interesting. And finally, as cyber threats rise, how vulnerable are mining companies? This is by Naimul Karim, and he does a deep dive on the vulnerabilities that mining companies might face in dealing with cyber attacks, particularly during a war between Ukraine and Russia that the West is increasingly seen to be involved in. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And before we begin, because we haven't hit it yet, is the U.S. 10-year bond, which we always like to mention during the show for contrast, is at 2.749%. So it has come down from 2.88 last week. So it is basically down 0.14%. So Kind of coming back from that 3% level, I think I saw it at 2.96 last week. Turning to gold, it is now trading at $1,905.46 per ounce. That is $71 lower than last week, so big fall there. Silver is at $23.59 per ounce. That is $2.33 lower than last week. Platinum is trading at $922.51 per ounce. That is $94 lower than last week. And palladium is trading at $2,248.15 per ounce. That is $127 lower 
than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.50 per pound. That is 16 cents lower. Aluminum is trading 7 cents lower at $1.40 per pound. Lead is trading 5 cents lower at $1.07 per pound. And nickel is trading 27 cents lower at $14.81 per pound. Tin is also trading lower at $18.36 per pound. That is a dollar. 29 lower than last week, and cobalt is two cents lower at $36.97 per pound, and zinc is also lower at $1.94 per pound. That is nine cents lower than last week. Zooming out, I think what we see here is fear. I think people are increasingly getting worried about a 2008 type event that the whole risk on trade is getting unwound. You saw it there as we were discussing at the top of the show, that Bloomberg article, that there's this concern that demand is starting to get destroyed, that there is demand destruction. And so even though, say, Alcoa did quite well from a profit perspective in the first quarter, I think there is a sense that demand, in other words, that recession is on the horizon. This is the big fear. And so I think that's what we're seeing here in the metals. And we can't forget, and you go, well, why is gold going down? Don't forget in 2008, gold also tanked with everything else. And then it came back faster. That's basically how it, I think it performed that way with COVID as well. I I don't really recall, but generally speaking, gold, everything generally goes down against the dollar and what used to be bonds, although bonds, not as clear anymore, but basically everything goes down at first and then people go back into gold maybe faster because maybe they feel safer and it's already down. And those are your metal prices. And coming up in this week's feature content, we are taking a look at the Alcoa conference call and it features President and CEO Roy Harvey and CFO William F. or Bill Opplinger, who discuss rising energy costs, leaving Russia, shipping challenges, and ongoing environmental initiatives towards zero carbon smelters. So I have abridged some of this for you, dear listener, in order to make it to just give you the highlights. So if you want the full thing, of course, go to Alcoa's website. Otherwise, here you go, the highlights from this quarter's conference call by Alcoa. I hope you enjoy it, and I will see you on the other side. everyone who is joining our first quarter earnings call. As you saw in today's press release, we had record quarterly results for profitability across three key measures, net income, adjusted net income, and adjusted EBITDA excluding special items. Bill will give more detail, but I'm pleased to report that it was a very solid quarter. We had net income of $469 million. Adjusted net income was $577 million. This is a 21% sequential improvement in more than three times what we posted in the first quarter of last year. Adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items, was $1.07 billion in 2021. And with a focus on our capital allocation framework, we have also repurchased 1 million shares of common stock in the quarter. Looking back at our more than five-year history as a standalone company, 
It's great to see the effort of our Alcoa teams and the strengthening market mirrored in these record-setting results. In this period of global volatility, we remain strong and steady, guided by our values and focusing on our strategic priorities. We're continuing to eliminate unnecessary complexity and focusing on being low cost, driving returns with strong margins, and operating sustainably across our global operations. We also remain focused on maintaining a safe workplace for our employees, contractors, and anyone who visits an Alcoa location. In the quarter, we had no serious injuries, and we remain resolute in the use of proactive tools to prevent incidents. When accidents do occur, we investigate to the root cause to continuously improve our safety systems and outcomes. Again this quarter, we continued to make important progress on several fronts. In January, we completed the curtailment of the San Cebrián smelter in Spain according to the terms of an agreement reached previously with the workforce. Even with improved metal prices, the smelter continued to lose money due to exorbitant energy prices. The agreements to idle the pot lines while continuing to operate the cast house will allow us to control our losses during a two-year curtailment period. We'll use that time to find an energy solution and deliver on improvements to the plant for its future. Meanwhile, we are continuing in our work to restart aluminum smelting capacity in Brazil and Australia. This additional capacity, once online, will continue to position us well to capture the benefits of stronger markets. In our bauxite business in Brazil, we've signed a deal to divest our full interest in Mineração Rio do Norte, or MRN. The transaction is expected to close in the second quarter of this year. Following this divestiture, we believe we will remain well-positioned in the bauxite business with high-quality reserves across our global system, and particularly in our Juriti mine in Brazil. The transaction avoids potential capital costs in the future and allows us to focus future bauxite investments into two Brazilian mines we own and operate. Next. We recorded $77 million in restructuring charges in the first quarter related to the 2019 divestiture of two Spanish smelters, Aviles and La Coruña. We offered to resolve various legal claims related to the sale of those assets, and former employees unanimously agreed this week to accept our proposal. Upon satisfaction of all agreed-upon conditions, this settlement is expected to avoid the potential for costly and lengthy litigation. We are continuing to pursue legal actions against the entity that purchased these assets and failed to meet its promises to our former employees. Finally, the fundamentals of the aluminum business remain strong, and the work we've done over these past several years has enabled us to operate efficiently and capture benefits from positive markets. In the quarter, we saw the average realized price for aluminum increase sequentially 14% to more than $3,800 per metric ton. And that's a good pivot point for Bill to detail the full results, including the positive impact that these strong metal prices had on our adjusted EBITDA. Bill, please go ahead. Thanks, Roy. The first quarter of 2022 marked Alcoa Corporation's highest net income and adjusted net income in its history, as well as the first time recording over $1 billion of adjusted EBITDA, excluding special items. Revenues of $3.3 billion were up $423 million, or 15% year-over-year, but slightly lower sequentially on logistics-related shipment delays. 
All earnings measures increased both year over year and sequentially. GAAP net income of $469 million was $294 million higher than the prior year quarter's $175 million and was $861 million higher sequentially. Special items in the quarter included $77 million related to a settlement offer made to the workers of the divested Avalas and La Coruña smelters in Spain, which would be paid upon their collective acceptance, and $58 million for asset impairment relating to the company's planned sale of its interest in the MRN bauxite mine. Adjusted net income of $577 million was up $427 million year over year and was up $102 million or 21% sequentially. Adjusted EBITDA of $1.07 billion improved $551 million year over year and was $176 million better sequentially. Let's look at the drivers for adjusted EBITDA. In the first quarter, the majority of the benefit of higher realized aluminum prices up $479 per ton sequentially, translated into higher adjusted EBITDA. Other positive contributors were stronger product premiums and customer mix in both the alumina and aluminum segments, as well as the lower costs and other related to inter-segment profit eliminations of approximately $64 million and improvements related to the San Cyprian smelter curtailment contributing $62 million. As expected, those improvements were partially offset by higher raw material costs in both the alumina and aluminum segments, as well as higher energy costs at refineries, primarily in Spain, and lower hydropower sales prices in Brazil. Volume was unfavorable in all three segments, partly because of fewer days in the quarter, but also due to lower production in Australia and shipment delays in Canada due to rail car availability. Despite the challenges, production costs were up very little sequentially and demonstrated overall strong cost focus. For more perspective on our strong margins, let's look at the relationship of realized sales prices compared to cash costs in the alumina and aluminum segments. These charts show a simplified view of our cash cost structures for the alumina and aluminum segments over the last year compared to third-party realized prices. The focus is on raw materials and energy costs, the areas where we receive the most questions from our investors. Looking at Illumina over time, you see that both energy and raw material costs have increased somewhat, while the remainder of the costs, including bauxites, have been mostly flat. The relatively muted rise of these costs reflects the benefits of our integrated system and co-located mines and refineries, low-cost soda use, global procurement strategies, and long-term energy contracts. Our main spot energy exposure is at our San Cyprian refinery in Spain. Reflecting broader market conditions and industry cost pressures, the realized alumina price has increased substantially, more than offsetting our cost increases, and spot index prices are currently similar to the 1Q average. An even more pronounced effect is seen in aluminum. Alumina costs in the aluminum segment are up, and while energy and other raw materials are also higher, their impact is outpaced by the significant increase in the realized aluminum price. Again, we see the benefits of our integrated system, global procurement capabilities, and minimal exposure to spot energy prices. Approximately 60% of our smelter energy costs are linked to aluminum prices. Roughly 30% is fixed price or self-generated power, 
and our spot exposure is less than 10% and limited to a portion of our Norway smelter load. And remember too that given our long position in alumina, higher alumina prices may impact aluminum segment earnings, but are a net positive for the company. The key message here is that most elements of our cost structure have seen only modest increases compared to our revenues. Let me turn it back over to Roy. Thanks, Bill. Next. I'd like to give an overview of what we're seeing in our markets. Last year, we saw a general price recovery after the impacts from the 2020 pandemic. Now, today's markets are experiencing increased volatility, most notably from Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but prices remain at higher levels than both the 2020 and 2021 averages. In the alumina market, demand is reduced due to global aluminum smelter cuts. We saw some tightness in the market last month when a competitor suspended shipments from the Nikolaev refinery in Ukraine. Since then, we have seen supply outside of China reemerge. Australia's decision to ban exports to Russia disrupted the market with a separation between suppliers willing to sell to Russia and those who are not. This has pressured Western Australian alumina pricing, and it has prompted some atypical Chinese exports to Russia. Turning now to metal, the aluminum segment continues to play a large and positive role in our overall results. On the demand side, we expect annual global demand for primary aluminum to increase this year approximately 2% relative to 2021. Growth remains positive despite a somewhat slower pace due to interruptions to supply chains, particularly in automotive, and lower growth expectations in Russia and Eastern Europe. With slightly lower but positive demand growth, aluminum pricing remains supported globally by supply disruptions, low inventory levels, and high transportation costs. High energy prices in Europe are driving some smelter cuts in this region. In China, the central government also continues to limit output growth in primary aluminum through the government's capacity permitting system. From Alcoa's commercial perspective, much of our value-add aluminum products are sold in annual contracts, and negotiations with customers resulted in favorable pricing quarter-on-quarter, -quarter, which we recognized in Q1. Regional premiums also remain high in markets where we produce, reflecting underlying physical tightness and logistics costs. Additionally, we are seeing year-on-year -year growth for our line of sustainable products in our Sustaina family. We expect threefold increases this year in the total volume of sales for Ecolum, which is our low-carbon aluminum brand, and Ecodura, which is our aluminum product made with at least 50% recycled content. Notwithstanding the current volatility in the markets, we continue to expect positive fundamentals in alumina and aluminum due to favorable structural changes, including a drive towards more sustainable solutions. These shifts should provide advantages for a low-carbon operator like Alcoa. As I said at the top of this call, Alcoa is strong and steady, an outcome of the work that we've been doing over these last several years to build an even stronger foundation, including a healthy balance sheet. This work has been vital to ensure success through all market cycles. Importantly, we've worked to ensure that we have a lean and efficient operating structure. Our Alcoans, as usual, have been working with diligence. As an example, the teamwork in our procurement group has been vital in helping us manage our raw material costs 
and work through various logistics challenges, especially important in this current environment. In our operations, we're also working to use our raw materials very efficiently. Our global refineries, as an example, are well positioned in this context. They use, on average, less caustic soda than most of our competitors. This is important as caustic soda is a key ingredient in the refining process. We use less caustic due to a variety of factors, primarily the high-quality bauxite from our integrated mines and the fact that we keep our refineries fine-tuned for our raw materials. Regardless of the situation, we have the processes and procedures to react efficiently. And when something new arises, we quickly adjust while maintaining overall stability. A good example of this is when we decided last month to cease buying raw materials from or selling products to Russian businesses. While we do not have operations in Russia, a multidisciplined team helped us act decisively and we've worked to mitigate the financial impact. As I explained to our employees in a letter following our decision on Russian businesses, we acted in alignment with our values and we continue to hope for an end to this crisis. As we continue to manage through what has been turbulent times, first from a pandemic and now the unease from the situation in Ukraine, it's important to emphasize that we remain well positioned for the future. We closed 2021 in our best financial shape ever and we remain lean and cost focused. We have low debt, well-funded pension obligations and a cash balance that stood at $1.6 billion at the end of the first quarter. We have top-tier assets that are strategically located to supply the world with the materials it needs now, including developing breakthrough technologies for tomorrow. We are building an operating portfolio that is cost-efficient, restarting capacity where it makes economic sense to do so, such as Alumar, and some modest capacity at Portland Aluminum in Australia. We have a clear vision to reinvent the aluminum industry for a sustainable future, supported by a technology roadmap that has the potential to decarbonize production processes, differentiate Alcoa, and create value for our stockholders. Our work on the Ellisys joint venture continues to progress. Last month, we were excited to see Apple announce that they'll use metal that is being produced at R&D scale for the iPhone SE. It's very exciting to see a technology that we first developed at the Alcoa Technical Center outside of Pittsburgh come to fruition via the Ellisys technology. This is truly revolutionary, producing metal without any direct greenhouse gases and instead producing oxygen as a byproduct. Once Ellisys technology licenses are available from 2024, the first full-scale commercial application of this breakthrough process could be running within two years. In addition to reinventing aluminum smelting, we're also working to unlock a new recycling technology that will use low-value scrap, removing impurities through a proprietary process that will produce high-purity aluminum. The output from this process will surpass the quality of what's produced at a conventional smelter. In refining, we were proud to announce last week that both the national and regional governments in Australia have agreed to provide funding for development of electric calcination, a process that would use renewable power to fuel the last stage of alumina refining. When combined with another technology known as mechanical vapor recompression, which also has funding in Australia, there is the potential to decarbonize alumina refining. 
These two technologies are built into what we're calling our Refinery of the Future initiative, which has the goal to lower the cost of constructing a refinery, eliminate fossil fuels, reduce freshwater usage, and minimize and eventually eliminate deposits of new bauxite residue. Finally, summing it all up, I want to leave you with a few key points from the results we issued today. First, despite volatile markets, we delivered. We continue to execute on our strategies to deliver solid results, including providing a 50% return on equity in the quarter. Second, our strategies are working. We've strengthened our company and our operating portfolio, including restarting capacity when it makes economic sense and, when necessary, executing on curtailments or divestitures according to our portfolio review process. Third, we are rewarding our investors. In the first quarter, we paid our second consecutive cash dividend. Also, we executed another tranche of our share repurchase authorization in accordance with our capital allocation framework. These actions, again, reflect our strength and our positive view of the future. And finally, we are excited about our future. Looking back through our history, it is clear that we have delivered on our purpose to turn raw potential into real progress. And as we look toward the future, we will continue to drive value and to redefine what aluminum consumers should expect when it comes to sustainable production and products across the aluminum value chain. And there you have it, another episode in the bag. What a big episode. I'm, I'm really glad I was on the air and that I'm doing this podcast to announce James Stein's passing. That might sound weird, but yeah, no, he's. I just think he's one of the great thinkers of uh, the last 50 years. And it's an honor to really just give the news and just give my take on that great soul. Otherwise, we have an awesome interview lined up for next week with Rowan Reddy. I'm going to ask him about these stocks, see what he says. And he doesn't really comment on the individual stocks, but we'll see if we can get anything out of him as to what is going on with these mining stocks and all the weird PEs and valuations we were seeing last week. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Until next week, take care.